Romans 12, 1 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, because this is your reasonable act of service, or could be translated your logical act of worship, because Jesus gave his all for us, he asked for our lives back in return. That's really what that's saying. Let's pray. Jesus, you're worthy. We praise your name. Lord, I pray that you would help us to lay our lives down, to trust you, to serve you, to worship you, to live for you because of who you are and what you've done for us. Pray for the work of the Holy Spirit to bring this about in our lives. I pray, God, now that your spirit would uh, give us understanding, guide us into truth as we look in your word, and uh, Lord, just enlighten our hearts and our minds. And help us to act on your truth in the way that we should. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So have a seat. Uh, grab your Bible. Let's go to uh, the book of Jude, the, the next to the last uh, book of the Bible. And uh, we're glad that you're here today. And we're in a, we're in a series uh, called The Faith That Stands and The Faith That Falls. And we're going to talk today about how to spot a fake. Okay, we're going to look at a few different verses in the book of Jude. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I'd have been okay with the drum solo. That, I mean, don't tease us, Shane. I mean, let's just go all the way with it. That would have worked for me. Um, you ever been deceived before? <laughs> Lots of times, right? One time uh, when I was in college, uh, it was naive, I guess. Maybe dumb's a better word. I don't know what you call it. But I got a call one day, and uh, they said they were from the American Dental Association, and they asked uh, what seemed like a couple of harmless uh, questions. But then, fortunately, I'd gone to the same dentist my whole life because uh, they contacted my dentist office and tried to use the little bit of information that I gave them to get drugs. They deceived me. A few years ago, Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary uh, bought, uh, I mean, like millions of, paid millions of dollars to buy some uh, pieces, some artifacts. Uh, from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Turns out they were a fake. Uh, how many of you have seen the movie Catch Me If You Can? You know what I'm talking about? It had uh, Leonardo DiCaprio in it, Tom Hanks, and it's about a guy by the name of Frank Abagnale Jr. who was like uh, a, a con man and you know, posed as a, as a pilot and a lawyer and, and a doctor and all these kind of things. And, uh, I mean, did all these crazy kind of things. Well, uh, it may be that the actual con was the book that he wrote claiming all of those things because now there's a guy who has written a book that it pretty much looks like he's debunked most of what he was claiming uh, as, as myth. I mean, he did a little bit of this stuff and blew it up like a hundred times out of proportion is what it appears to be. But like the guy teaches now, uh, he speaks and he does like corporate consulting about uh, fraud avoidance and uh, all, all these kind of things. And uh, so I don't know what's the con at this point in, in all of this. But, uh, you know, these are kind of just examples from day-to-day -day life. But the purpose of this message is to help us to see that in, in essence that false teachers are spiritual fakes who are trying to con us out of uh, the solidity of our faith in Christ. They're trying to tear us down, to, to lead us astray. Because really the, what the Bible teaches is that Satan 
is a liar, he's a deceiver, and that's the method that he works through uh, to destroy us, to lead us astray. And of course, uh, you know, you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, and, and Satan's tactics really haven't uh, changed a whole lot. Is he questioned the Word of God, he distorted the Word of God, and he denied the Word of God. And that's what false teachers do today. And so the question is, are we going to be conned spiritually? Are we going to be faked spiritually? Are are we going to be led astray spiritually? Or are we going to stand firm in the faith that stands? Jude, verses 3 and 4, just to review for a minute before we move forward in, in the book, you know, Jackson, a few weeks ago, introduced us uh, the first couple of verses. And then a couple of weeks ago, we looked at verse 3 and part of verse 4, which say, Beloved, for I was, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. And we've tried to focus a lot on the positive side of this, what the faith is, Last week, as Missy referenced, we talked about why have faith in the faith. And so, if you're not a Christian, you weren't here last week, I'd really encourage you to listen to last week's message and consider these reasons as to if you should trust in in Jesus or not. We talked about the faith is clearly defined. The faith is completely exclusive. The faith is permanently settled. Uh, the, The faith is divinely uh, revealed. Uh, And and, and when we talk about the faith, remember it's the body of Christian doctrine. It's the fact that the Bible is the inspired and errant word of God. God is creator. He's the sovereign ruler that we're made in his image, that we've fallen, separated from him uh, by sin, but that Jesus came to save us of our sins, that Jesus is fully God, fully man, born of a virgin, lived a perfect and a sinless life, died on the cross as the substitutionary, atoning, sufficient sacrifice for our sins, bodily rose from the dead, is literally going to return uh, to rule and reign, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, according uh, to Scripture uh, alone. This is the essence of the Christian faith. But, verse 4, certain men have crept in, unnoticed. Crept in where? Into the church. Unnoticed. They're, they're, they're stealthy. They're, uh, they're, they're like spies. It's like espionage. It's like subterfuge. It's, it's like uh, the examples I gave before. I mean, uh, you know, nobody, you know, you're flipping the TV channels around and you're watching, you stop on some prosperity preacher. He, he's not announcing, hey, I'm a fake. Hey, I'm a heretic. Hey, I'm a false teacher. I mean, that's not how deception works, right? I mean, if somebody was trying to poison somebody else, they're not going to, you know, label the glass they're trying to get them to drink out of with poison, with you know, the poison symbol. But it says certain men, and this is what we're going to focus on really the next couple of weeks. Certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And we see three characteristics of false teachers 
here in, in verse 4. And then they're elaborated on down through around verse 16. And so we're going to look at the first two of these characteristics today and then focus in on the third one next week. But we see here the future of false teachers is that they will be condemned. The spiritual condition of false teachers is that they are unsaved. And the root and expression of this condition is perverting the grace of God and denying the lordship of Christ. So, let's examine the first one of these characteristics. The the future of false teachers is that they will be condemned. Notice what it says. For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. And, And the words marked out there come from a single Greek word, prographo, which means to write beforehand. And so what it's saying is that these false teachers, um, it was written beforehand, it's written in the Old Testament, that their judgment is certain. Unless they repent, if they persist in this kind of heresy, it's a sign that they're not saved and that judgment is coming. Now, what does that look like? Well, look ahead a few verses in here in the book of Jude. Look at verses 14 and 15. It says, Now Enoch... The seventh from Adam prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now, let's unpack this. Think about this for just a second. It says, Enoch the seventh from Adam. So he's one of the first people recorded in the Bible, right? You remember that name? Now, isn't it pretty wild that someone that early in the Bible is prophesying about the return of Jesus Christ to bring judgment on the opponents of God? Now, it's also interesting, if you go back and look for these verses in the Old Testament, you're not going to find them. Jude is actually quoting from something called the book of Enoch, which is a non-canonical book. You may say, why would that be in the Bible? Why would he quote from that? Well, he would quote from that because the Holy Spirit led him to, because it's true. You say, well, why is it not in the Bible then? Well, apparently the whole of the book was not inspired and not all true, and that's why it's not included in the pages of Scripture. But, again, it's, it's pretty amazing that Enoch would talk about the return of Jesus Christ. In fact, if you stop and think about it, I think, I, I think it was last week I said this, that everything's in the Bible is in seed form in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Now, you know, one of the things, you know, it's a secondary doctrine, it can be, be debated, but the rapture of the church, you know, the, the, the church is removed to meet Jesus in the clouds. Let me ask you a question. How did Enoch die? How did Enoch die? Okay, there you go. It's a trick question. He didn't die. You know, he was translated up to heaven. What's that a picture of? The rapture. He's talking about the return of Christ. Um, but, But really the point here is, is that judgment is coming for those who reject God, including false teachers. You say, well, why does God just let them have their space now? 
I don't fully know, but I know that you know, Jesus told the parable of the wheat and tares and said, let them grow up until, uh, together until uh, you know, the, the day uh, of judgment. But if, if you notice here, remember that word, it's to write beforehand. He gives three Old Testament examples in verses 5 through 7 of, of how God judged people who, who didn't trust him, who didn't follow him. And the idea is, if God did it in the past, he's going to do it in the future. The best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. Of course, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he may be patient and long-suffering and give people the space and the opportunity to repent. But he is going to judge sin. Look at, look at these examples. Uh, the first example is his people that he delivered from Egypt in the Exodus. But they ended up wandering in the wilderness uh, for 40 years and died in the wilderness. It says, but I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So, God said, you know, these people, my people, that, that I delivered from Egypt, they didn't trust me, and I judged them. If I judge them, I'm going to judge false teachers today. Uh, he gives another example in verse 6. The angels who fell with Lucifer. It says, the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he is reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. The Bible teaches us that when Lucifer rebelled, that a third of the angels joined with him. We now know them as demons, and uh, this, is what, this is their destiny. This is what God has done to them. He's saying, if I judge the angels, I'm going to judge these false teachers. Verse 7 he speaks of Sodom and Gomorrah. It says, As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Again, he's saying, if he judged them, he's going to judge false teachers today. So you can know that, that the future of false teachers uh, is judgment, but... We still need to be aware. We still know how to spot them because they're still dangerous in the moment until that judgment comes. That's what he's saying here. Second, the spiritual condition of false teachers is that they are unsaved. You say, why would I say this? Well, look at the little phrase right in the middle of this verse there. Just very simply, it says, ungodly men. Now, when we use the word ungodly, and, and I'm not saying it's wrong to use it this way, uh, but like if, um, if like you heard me snap at somebody and be really hateful to them, say some inappropriate things, uh, you might say, well, well, that was ungodly, right? And, and, and that's true, but I guess something I learned studying this week is every time the word ungodly is used, in the New Testament, actually what it's referring to is a lost person. Someone who doesn't know Christ. Uh, two or three examples. Uh, Romans 4, 5 says, But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. So, when we trust him, Jesus justifies us, declares us righteous, even though we're ungodly, even though we're sinners, even though we're lost. Romans 5, 6 says, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. 
Uh, there's about eight other examples like that that I won't read all of them for time's sake. But like verse 19 in the book of Jude uh, says that the, the, these false teachers don't have the Spirit. If you don't have the Spirit, you're not saved. What's the number one mark of someone who's a Christian? You're indwelled by the Holy Spirit. But look at Jude uh, verse 15. He says, to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So ungodly people do and say ungodly things or teach ungodly things. Uh, You know, as a Christian... We can do that occasionally, but that's not going to be the mark of our lives. But God doesn't call us ungodly. The word ungodly literally means without reverence or without worship. So if you're without worship of God, you're ungodly, but that means you're lost. See, these false teachers were worshiping their own version of God. Now, again, this doesn't mean that if someone like makes a mistake that that makes him a false teacher or a heretic or something like that. If somebody just gets tongue-tied one time, I've done it many times. If someone says something and they correct it, if if someone's just mistaken about an interpretation of Scripture, this is talking about when people are uh, just persist in theological error and they're trying to lead people astray and they're trying to develop a following for themselves. But what it also highlights is the importance of character in ministry. And and I think this is something that in the church in America today we need to be reminded of. We've gotten into such a celebrity culture that people who are charismatic or or have speaking gifts uh, can build a big church, attract a large following, and then um, see so many famous preachers falling, and people are like, what's wrong? And the issue is always going to be a character issue. That's why the Bible puts the emphasis on character when it comes to spiritual leadership. I mean, there are certain things, uh, character requirements that you should expect from our elders, that you should expect from me as a teaching pastor, that you you should expect our other elders to hold me to, that really you should expect from our staff, and in all uh, of our leaders at True Life. I mean, one passage, just to kind of look at the positive before we look at this list uh, of characteristics of false teachers, 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. This is the kind of things you should expect uh, of, of pastors. It says, this is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop and there's, I don't have the time to get into all this, but this isn't a bishop like you think of in like the Catholic Church or something like that. There's some different uh, Greek words, three Greek words that are translated to five English words uh, that pastor, shepherd, bishop, overseer, elder, that all refer to what we think of as the office of pastor. But it says a bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, 
not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, not spiritually immature, not a new believer. Uh, Lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. That's God's standard. Now, contrast that with this list of the characteristics that he gives of these false teachers here in the book of Jude. And so, um, so this is what we're going to do. We're going to look at kind of some of the, the, the verses, uh, like verses 8 through 16. And I rarely do this in a message, but I don't really know any other way to handle this particular text. We're going to look at a list of about 15 characteristics of false teachers that he gives here. Most of them we're just going to spend a few seconds on. A couple of them, uh, you know, would take a little bit more time. But let's just kind of walk through these, okay? Number one. Uh, They substitute their own spiritual delusions and sensual confusion for the truth of the Word of God. Uh, If you notice verse 8, it it calls them dreamers. They say, what does this mean? I mean, I thought the Bible pictured God speaking through dreams. Can God do that? Yes, God can speak through dreams. But you have to be really careful with that kind of thing. But this is what it's talking about. Let me just read you a few sentences from Dr. Danny Aiken in his commentary on Jude. He puts it this way. Uh, Notice the verse starts out, likewise or in the same way, depending on your translation. He says, in the same way, connects verse 8 with verse 7 and the sexual immorality of Sodom and Gomorrah. You see that in the context? That's what it's saying. Jude's opponents resemble the ancient cities in their moral rebellion. Jude calls these false teachers dreamers. Now now listen to this. This is very important because this is how a lot of people teach today. This is where a lot of people get led astray. Probably, honestly, some of you do this sometimes. He says, rejecting the Bible as their authority... They appeal to dreams and their own imaginations as a source of revelation and justification for their immoral lifestyle. This is the God told me, and I prayed about it defense for what Jude calls defiling the flesh. You've heard somebody say that was getting divorced say, well, God told me I was free from my marriage. That's what he's talking about here. That, that's one example. He's claiming to have a word from the Lord. You ever heard somebody say, God gave me a word? God revealed this to me. But claiming to have a word from the Lord does not legitimate what one says. False prophets in the Old Testament made such claims. So claiming an extra-biblical source of authority, these false teachers attempt to justify their moral lifestyle. And there's many other ways it can be done. But Dr. Aiken goes on to say, the context would point to sexual sin as the primary, though not the exclusive sin. This newfound freedom to indulge and feed the flesh was apparently credited to God. And this is part of what we're going to talk about uh, next week. But if you look at the end of verse 4, basically what it's saying is they use the grace of God as an excuse for sin. They deny the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so it's like 
I'm covered. I can live however I want. I can do whatever I want sexually. That's what's known as antinomianism, and it's one of the rank heresies of, in the church in the United States today. To finish Dr. Aiken's quote, um, says, This newfound freedom to indulge and feed the flesh was apparently credited to God. If you choose to live loosely, immorally, lewdly, and out there on the moral edge, don't look to God to justify your foolishness and immaturity. Be honest to point your finger at the real enabler yourself. You're saying God gets blamed for a whole lot of things he doesn't have anything to do with. And this is how it happens. The question we should always be asking is, what does Scripture say? What does Scripture say? To live under the authority of Scripture means God said it, that settles it, I must obey. So, uh, it calls them dreamers, and meaning they're adding to Scripture, using it to justify their sin. We see here in verse 8 that they practice sexual immorality. The next phrase says they defile uh, the flesh. Uh, you know, later on, verse 16, verse 18 says they're walking according to their own ungodly lusts. Uh, number three, they reject authority. Verse 8 says, likewise, also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. In this context, it refers to rejecting the lordship of Christ. In other words, uh, they're saying, I'm going to do what I want to do, and you should listen to me, you should follow me, not follow Jesus. We see in verses 8 and 9 that they're arrogant. Uh, it, it says here, uh, they reject authority. They speak evil of dignitaries, which is talking about angels in this context. It says, yet Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. And that uh, thing with Michael and the devil contending over the body of Moses is not found in Scripture. And, uh, you know, what happened was it mean don't fully know, not going to even speculate on it since it's not in the Bible. But the point that it's making is this. You remember people go around rebuking the devil? Well, the, the, the text here says that even Michael the archangel didn't do that. But he said, the Lord rebuke you. And the point that he's making is that uh, these false teachers are so arrogant uh, that they do stuff that Michael the archangel wouldn't dare to do. So watch people who claim authority in themselves. You know, are people proud? Are they, are they humble? Are they pointing you to Christ? Are they pointing you to Scripture? Are they pointing you to themselves? You know, they're always the hero of their own stories. Are they touting all the great spiritual things they've done, all the ways that God has used them. Those are people to be suspect of. Okay? That's what he's saying. Verse 10, they're spiritually blind. It says, these speak evil of whatever they do not know. What an indictment. All of us are guilty of this, right? That's why the Bible tells us not to be wise in your own opinion. I mean, we pontificate about things that are beyond our knowledge and maturity. But some people, you know, they make a quote, spiritual career out of that kind of thing. They speak as authorities of things that they don't know what they're talking about. Um, you know, watch pastors who act like they're an expert on every subject. 
Next, they corrupt themselves. That, that's what the inverse tense is. It says that they speak evil of whatever they do not know and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts. And these things, they corrupt themselves. They're practicing spiritual and moral self-destruction. Next, the, verse 11. They approach God wrongly through human works instead of through faith in the sacrifice of Jesus. He gives three Old Testament examples in verse 11. He says, woe to them, and woe is a word of judgment if you go back to the Old Testament. He says, for they have gone in the way of Cain. So, let me ask you a question. What's Cain famous for in the Bible? Killing his brother. So, you know, is the application here, uh, you know, if you want to be a real teacher, don't kill people. I mean, I think that might be a little simplistic, right? Hopefully that's a given. Uh, you know, that if you're going to be a pastor, you shouldn't murder anybody. Uh, I mean, that would be setting the bar pretty low. It goes deeper. If you go back and read the story of Cain and Abel, at the root of that story, Abel offered a sacrifice that God accepted. See, everything's a heart issue. Cain offered a sacrifice that God rejected. Why? Because the sacrifice that God accepts in most context in Scripture, is a blood sacrifice. Abel offered that, Cain didn't. Hebrews 11.4 says, By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it he being dead still speaks. 1 John 3.12 it says, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. I mean, his outward act revealed a heart condition, but the heart condition came from a faith problem, is what he's saying. Listen to me. Cain tried to come to God in the wrong way. He tried to come to God through his own works in his own sacrifice, in his own version of things, whereas Abel came to God through faith in the blood, which points to the fact that salvation comes through faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. So this is the only way to God. So anyone who diminishes the importance, the efficacy, the necessity of the blood of Christ. Anyone, and this is a common thing today, who denies penal substitutionary atonement. Anyone who says we're saved by our own efforts. Anyone who adds works to the finished work of Christ. Anyone who's teaching faith plus. Anyone who is teaching any other way than grace is a false teacher, is a heretic, is to be avoided. Paul said, God forbid that I boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The cross is the only way. And we're never going to grow past it. Spiritual growth always comes from going back to Christ and Him crucified. Next, they're greedy. Look at the next phrase. It says, they've run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit. And so this text uses the Old Testament example of Balaam from Numbers 22 through 24 who led Israel into sexual sin for money. Uh, Paul said in 1 Timothy 6 to avoid those who teach that godliness is a means of gain. 
Next, the end of verse 11, they rebel against God-ordained human authority. It says they perish in the rebellion of Korah. And Korah, this is recorded in number 16, rebelled against God's leaders, Moses and Aaron, and, and was killed in the process. Again, one of the ways that, that you can know that someone is a false teacher, someone to be avoided, someone to be careful with, is they don't have any authority over them. Again, part of the reason that we believe in an elder form of church government, a plurality of pastors, is there's built-in authority and accountability there. It, listen, if you're going to support some kind of parachurch ministry, can I encourage you to do something before you support it? Find out who's on the board. And if the board has family members on it, run from the ministry. Because there's not real accountability there. I mean, as Christians, sometimes, I mean, we talk about having the truth, but we can be really naive sometimes. Like, you know, one of the things we did when we were in Uganda is we, you know, sniffed out some fakes. And so the warnings that John gave you about that, you would be wise to heed it. I mean, if, if he said, you know, talk to me before you give, if you see something online, you really ought to do that. Because people will con and scam. That's just the reality. And, you know, all this kind of spiritual talk can mean nothing in a lot of instances. Next, we see here that they are dangerous to the church. Uh, notice what he says at the beginning of verse 12. He says, these are spots in your love feast. Now, there's debate among Bible scholars, but and, and spots is a, a, a possible translation of the Greek word here, but it seems like most Bible scholars think this is referring to like hidden rocks or reefs, like that would be under the surface, but if a ship uh, hit them, it would kind of like the Titanic scraping against an iceberg and, you know, creating those holes underneath the waterline. Uh, this is what it's saying. So it's very picturesque. It's saying these are like hidden rocks that can shipwreck you. Uh, they're, they're dangerous to the church. Uh, the next phrase says they serve only themselves. It says while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. So uh, uh, again, one of the tests before you follow someone in a spiritual capacity is do the way they live, the way they lead, does the way that ministry functions, does it seem like it exists to serve and enrich them, or is it for your good? And he's saying these false teachers, <laughs> it was about what they could get out of it, it was for them, it's not what they could give, and it wasn't for the people. And then he goes on in verses 12 and 13, and it's very uh, picturesque phrases here. He says, they're clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. So they're spiritually empty and dead people who do evil things, lead people astray, and receive judgment for it. Verse 16, 
they complain against God. It says these are grumblers, complainers, uh, walking according to their own lust. Um, and then it says they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. So they speak arrogantly of themselves, and then they tell people what people want to hear in order to gain a following. So, again, if someone's about their glory and not the glory of God, you should avoid them. But you know what? If someone is about your glory and not the glory of God, you should avoid them too. Um, there's, there's a lot of preaching today that is man-centered instead of God-centered. And focuses on what we can get out of it instead of glorifying God. Or, uh, you know, have you ever heard somebody preach that like they interject themselves into all the Bible stories? Someone's coined the phrase for this, Jesus," You know, combining narcissism and exegesis. That, that's the kind of thing that he's talking about here. Where's the focus? Is the focus on the glory of God? And then last, verse 19, they're divisive. And, you know, sometimes, um, you know, when people try to stand for the truth, they're considered to be divisive. But someone who's working against the truth is ultimately divisive. Although, at the same time, you have to be careful. I mean, I would really caution you to watch, like, discernment bloggers, those kind of things. Some of those people are just making stuff up to get clicks. I mean, seriously. I mean, like, I know people uh, personally that have been on, you know, the wrong end uh, of that kind of thing. And, and so, you have to watch for those kind of things. Now, to finish up, I want to do two things. So, there, there's a man by the name of Tim Challies, who, and you can find this on his blog, I think it's challies.com, but it, a great article about seven different types of false teachers in the church. And I think you see them in this, um, this list that we went through in Jude. So to give us a practical handle, and you know, this stuff is in your notes, and you know, I know list is a little hard to follow. Yeah, I'd encourage you to access the notes on your app. But he talks about seven kinds of false teachers in the church today. And, and I want to hit these quickly and, and tell you a story and, and, and to, to wrap it up and we'll be finished. First of all, he talks about the heretic. The heretic is the false teacher. Uh, someone who is teaching against Scripture, teaching against the fundamentals of the faith. You know, sometimes we call them cults. This could be like Jehovah's Witnesses, Scientology, those kind of things, other world religions. But just things that, you know, denying the Trinity, denying the deity of Christ, uh, denying Christ's atonement, denying the bodily resurrection, uh, you know, denying salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, those kind of things. So the heretic, watch out for that. The charlatan. This would be the person who's in it for money. This would be the prosperity gospel. This would be someone who's always trying to get you to give to their ministry or telling you, if you give to me, you're going to get this from God in uh, response. Uh, very, very common, right? Um, third would be the prophet. And this is someone like what we were talking about with the dreamers, someone who's getting private personal revelations, someone who's adding to Scripture. And again, you know, like Mormonism, this is what Joseph Smith did. But, you know, I think it's very common in charismatic theology today. But people do it all the time. Uh, they, they take away from the sufficiency of Scripture 
and they add to it. God spoke this. God told me to tell you this. Uh, you know, I've got a fresh word from the Lord. When people say that to you, run. Okay, you don't need a fresh word from the Lord. You got a whole lot of words from the Lord that you need to understand and apply to your life, and that'll keep you busy for the rest of your life. There's the abuser. The abuser is someone who uses ministry and, and mistreats people in some way commonly, and we see this in this text, in, in sexual ways. This is why, you know, I talked about this earlier this summer, why we've gone to the Southern Baptist Convention three years and, and, and stood with, voted for the SBC doing the right thing when it comes to this abuse issue. And I thank God that we have. That's why I said, you know, we talked about that earlier this summer. We've always tried to make this a priority to be as careful as we can, uh, you know, with this issue at our church. And we will continue. In fact, in fact, even try to be more vigilant with it. Some of our staff right now are working on even beefing up. And we've had policies and procedures and, and, and things, safeguards in place uh, ever since we started the church. But we're trying to improve those uh, even now. And I can't guarantee that nothing like that will ever happen. I pray that it does not. I understand my kids have grown up in the children's ministry of this church too. So, you know, it's, it's personal to me. But I promise you we will do everything we can to prevent that kind of thing from happening because it is an abomination, uh, blasphemy against the name of God for people in the name of Christ to treat people in this way. So, and, and remember, sometimes I think we think of false teachers in purely theological terms. But part of the reason why I read that passage in 1 Timothy 3 about the character that God requires is heretics aren't just about what they teach. It's about how they live. It could be either. It could be both. But you can't separate the two when it's all said and done. There's a divider. Someone who is causing division within uh, the body of Christ at large or in a particular local church. Listen, if, if somebody ever tries to do that at True Life, you be a part of stopping that. Six, the tickler. Someone who tickles ears. And, and, and this is a form of heresy that's more about what's not said than what is said. Now, the, the easy person to pick on when it comes to this, the, the obvious example is Joel Osteen. Because the, the biggest problem with his sermons, more than what is said, is what's not said. You can't pick and choose. I mean, there's problems with what he says, but it's more what he leaves out. Again, he, it's easy to pick on him, but listen to me. Any pastor who ducks hard issues, who doesn't deal with sin, and not just in a public context, even a one-on-one -on -one, uh, context, any pastor who doesn't preach the whole counsel of God, any pastor that, uh, you know, kind of dulls the, the, the sharp edges or, uh, you know, is just trying to build people up. Listen, preaching should contain, should contain encouragement and challenge, but any pastor who doesn't do those things is guilty of this. And the last category that he talks about is the speculator. This is someone who just focuses on just trivial things, uh, you know, 
tertiary, third, fourth level doctrine or is adding to scripture. You particularly find this uh, when it comes to end time stuff. People that are speculating all these out there scenarios that the Bible doesn't really teach about and those kind of things. Maybe that's not as serious as some of these other things, but I think it's like a a gateway into some of these other things. So the issue is the authority of Scripture. Making sure we believe, teach, obey, function according to the Word of God. Now, let me close with this because, you know, you may have sat here for the last, um, I've been up here for about 40 minutes, slightly over 40 minutes now. It's like, I ain't got these lists, so, you know, this little obtuse maybe, or, you know, I'm not going to go join uh, a cult. You know, I'm not going to become Jehovah's Witness or whatever. I'm not going to become a Buddhist or a Muslim or any of those kind of things. This isn't that big a deal uh, to me. But, you know, there are people that are doing that. You you know that most Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons are ex-Baptist? I mean, that's who they prey on is people with some religious background because, you know, there are not too many atheists that's going to go for that kind of stuff. So let me give a face to this, okay? This isn't just out there in the, quote, cults. What I'm talking about is in Baptist churches, mainline churches. So Wednesday before last, you know, with some of our people that feel called to full-time ministry, some of our interns, Pastor Philip and I do training with them at 5 o'clock on Wednesday afternoons. And a couple times this summer, we've gone out uh, to, to give them some evangelism training, and, and we've done door-to-door visitation, okay, gone old school. And what I found is, you know, that kind of died for a while. I th- in, in today's world, a lot of people talk to you. I mean, we've had the two times we've done this this summer, we've, we've, we've gone, we've done a religious opinion survey, and it's opened the door, and we've had some great gospel conversations uh, both times. And so this past time, I, I was out with Grayson and Mara, and they wanted to, me to do the first one so, that, so they could observe, and then they were going to do one. Uh, but like the first house we went to, we didn't get the religious opinion survey. Basically, a lady, I mean, she was nice, but she'd been having a rough day, and she vented on me for a few minutes, and I prayed for her. And then we got a door closed in her face. And another lady wouldn't talk to us because of how bad a day that she'd had. But then another lady talked to us, and we ended up spending uh, pretty much the rest of our time, like 45 minutes there with her. And this is a lady... You know, she's not a Jehovah's Witness. She's not a Mormon, anything like that. She grew up in a Baptist church. And I don't know how old she is. I would guess, I'm sure she's at least in her 60s, maybe her 70s. And like so many people in East Tennessee, she did something when she was a kid, got baptized, but she couldn't articulate the gospel to you. She's heard all this legalism All this stuff added to Scripture. She's like, I never told her I was a pastor. But she's like, you know, if somebody preaches, they got to yell. They got to be passionate. They got to say it like they mean it. And I'm like, I'm just kind of inwardly chuckling like, you wouldn't like true life. You you wouldn't like my preaching too much. And and, and then she's like, uh, like, do you all use the old Bible? And um, I mean, I just, I'm, you know, 
I'm not trying to act like some kind of hero because we went out not, uh, you know, knocking on doors. Uh, I got to repent all the time, too. But, and this is terrible when you're trying to witness somebody. But my, I bit my tongue. The filter kicked in. But my inward snark <laughs> was thinking when she said this because I, hate the, I, I knew she was talking about the King James. I hate this whole King James only thing because it's confusing. It's divisive. She's like, do you use the old Bible? I want to say, well, uh, do you want me to use my Greek New Testament? Is that old enough for you? Uh, which that's a terrible way to think when you're... Uh, trying to witness to somebody, but y'all pray for me. I still need to grow. But, um, but you know, so, I mean, we shared the gospel with her, but it just felt like it, it went round and round and round and round. And, and uh, you know, at some point, you just kind of, like you planted the seed and you pray, and there's only so much you can do. But part of the reason it went round and round and round and round is because, People yelled and screamed and got excited and talked about all this legalistic stuff and added to the Bible. And so she's heard not the real gospel. I mean, she, it's not like she's really heard the gospel and believed it or rejected it. She's heard a false version of it in a Baptist church and thinks, but she's not sure that she's okay. And, and, and if we could go knock on every door in East Tennessee, we would hear the same story in some form tens of thousands of times. That's why this matters. That's why it matters. It's not just obtuse points of theology. If what we talked about last week is true, then this lady sometime probably not in the r real distant future uh, from what she said about her health, is going to die, and she's either going to go to heaven or hell. That's why this matters. I mean, is there a heaven? Is there a hell? Is Jesus the only way there? Is the Bible true? Is, is what we're saying uh, about the way to God, is it real? Th th it matters. I mean, because we're all going to die. And what then? What happens? And how do we live our life right now? And how do we know what's true? That's why it matters. So don't fall for the fake. Stand in the faith. But that leads to the question of are you in the faith? Are you trusting Christ alone, his finished work on the cross for your salvation? Are you like that lady? You've heard some stuff and you did something, but you don't really know what you did? If that's you, when we finish, come talk to me or talk to somebody you know. Settle that. Let's pray.